Hi, it's Maria here and welcome to episode four of Talking with Painters, where Australian painters talk about their lives and art. I have a great conversation to share with you today. It's with Sydney artist George Raftopoulos. George held his first solo show when he was only 20. He was still at uni and he's been exhibiting for the last 25 years in Australia and internationally in New York, Hong Kong and Paris. He has a relentless energy and rebellious attitude which really comes through in his art. We talked about his early years when his was the only Greek family in the small town of Grenfell which is in country New South Wales. He also talks about the moment in his teenage years which really defined which direction his life would ultimately take. He also gives some great insights into his process and purpose. I started by asking him what he remembers of his art influences from his early years. I was in grade two in Grenfell and I remember that art had the ability to transport me somewhere. When um, we were doing art in class, drawing, and the teacher, okay kids, it's time now to put down the pencils and the paper. And I didn't hear her. And she asked me twice, thrice, and she came over and she picked up the piece of paper and tore it up in front of me. She thought I was just being obstinate, which part of me I probably was, but the major part of me was that I was being transported. And I realised that um, art had the ability to switch me off from the world and um, in a sense um, give me a sense of meditation but um, that action of tearing up I knew I was penetrating something I knew so that wasn't a deterrent no no it was like wow how cool is that I I can actually get a rise out of people so it started back then it started from then that little fervor and so you say you grew up in Grenfell Mm. so um, what was that like Oh, look, it was... What, what, can you describe Grenfell first? Grenfell's a little country town about four and a half hours southwest of Sydney. It's between, it's sort of nestled between Cowra and Young. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, back in the early 80s, it was not a cool place like it is now. Like Cowra, people go to Cowra because it's become organic wine country and it's, you know, the food's great. But I tell you, when we were out there, it was, it was a hard town to live, and especially being Greek, you know, mm. being the only wog in the village. Mm. Um, mm. You know, we were... Uh, so we there were, were no other... There wasn't a Greek community, no, it was there just was, you guys. We were the only Greeks in that town. There was other Greeks in um, Forbes, in uh, Cowra, in Young, in Wagga Wagga. So we're talking about a big radius here of probably, you know, to go from one town to the next is you know, 45 minutes and 45 minutes. Mm. So I essentially grew up with no Greekness whatsoever other than the way I looked. and. The so length. your parents didn't speak Greek at home? Not really, no. And the length of my surname, you know, and the way we looked and yeah. that was it really. The only sort of semblance of Greekness we ever got was uh, the invention of the, the uh, VHS recorder. You know, if you owned a video recorder in the 80s, man, it meant you were like, you were rolling in cash. You know? Yeah, right. <laughs> But that's how we got a world into Greekness. Oh, what do you mean? In what way? what would happen is we all got VHS players. So the guy from Forbes, my dad's mate, would get videos sent from Greece and they'd watch Greek films. Oh, right. So we'd be sitting there going, who are these people? This is is unbelievable. Like, it's crazy. What is this crap? Yeah, right. So they came to watch it at your place. Yeah, and then that that guy would give it to the guy in Cowra, and then the guy in Cowra, it was like a library system, you know. (laughs) 
Oh, that's interesting. And then we'd get together occasionally and we'd have, you know, Greek food. Yeah, and that right. was really the extent of it. Yeah, you okay, know? that's interesting. So, um, that So you of, did have a feeling of otherness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And a rebellion. And why am I this person? And what does it mean? Why are they calling me a wog? And mm. what does that mean? And a lot of anger, you know, towards mm. being who I am. Did you find you didn't fit in? Absolutely. At school, so, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, luckily for me, I was extremely athletic. And as we know in this country, if you're an, ath- an athlete or if you play sport, you're a demigod, mm. you know. Mm. Um, so that was your way in. That was my way in because in those country towns back in those days, one had to prove themselves. And the way that I proved myself was that one day I went to footy training, the very first day that I landed in Grenfell, and I went to footy training and the guy said to me, hey, mate, can you tackle? And I said, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm like a midget, you know. And he got the biggest guy to run at me. And I don't know, the Greek gods must have helped me that day. And I, I pummeled this guy on the ground and I won instant respect and kudos. Mm. You know, I played representative soccer. I played representative rugby union, believe it or not. Right. You know, I, I came to a junction where I could have been a sports person or I could have done... And pursued what I do now. Oh, so did you consider being a sports person? Yeah, I did. And I had a horrendous accident. You know, I was like 13 and I had a horrendous accident where I went through a, a glass door <laughs> and I was an inch away from being a paraplegic. Oh, goodness. Um, and I went into hospital a young boy and I came out a young man, you know. I was mm. forever changed. I was in a daze and I'm hearing the doctor saying to my, my uh, sister, who's a nurse, saying to her, look, we don't know if he's going to again so that's that so that basically puts sport off the table that, yeah. that accident and yeah. then and so in a way that's like a defining moment for yeah. you because that yeah. changed the course for you it's that junction and in school in high school did you do art i did and i failed miserably did you enjoy it no no and that's the other funny thing about me is that the minute something becomes contrived forced or like it's a, something I must do, I'm out. Yeah. I lose interest. Mm. I made a uh, conscious decision when I finished high school that um, I didn't go to university straight away. I decided to go to Greece and find out, um, you know, who my family was, where I was from. Um, because for the longest part, there was one term that I found very difficult to um, swallow and that was you know peasants they were just peasants and you know I'm okay with that because it's it's true but at least they were organic about it yeah you know the abundance of language the abundance of history the abundance of food and there's nothing uh, contrived or fake about it it's real yeah and the word peasant is not a derogatory no it's not I know what you mean it's quite the opposite Mm. it's a very rich life absolutely so flip that, here I am in the country town negating all the Greekness, mm-hmm. you know, pushing it aside, trying to be as Aussie as anybody else because essentially that's what I am, right? Yeah. And well, then, it's also survival. Absolutely, absolutely. And then coming to this realisation that, wow, going to Greece every summer for 10 years, learning to read, learning to write, learning to speak, and it was almost like an investment into the language of my work. And then what, when did you decide to go to uni to study art? Okay. Well, 
my father's dream has always been to go back to Greece and you know, I'm the prodigal son. I have three sisters on the, the youngest and, you know, his dream was to take me back to Greece and build the family empire and say, you know, look at look at us, we've arrived. Yeah. I momentarily danced with that because it meant that in, in uh, some way my life was going to be very easy, you know. He was going to build hotels, we were going to do this, that and the other, and it was all set, it was easy. But what it meant for me was that I had to sell out. I had to sell out who I truly was. Mm-hmm. And I had to kind of negate that I had this fuel and I had something that I wanted to say. Mm-hmm. I wasn't quite aware that it was going to be art at that point, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always knew that I had something. So what it, what it meant was also turning my back on everything from here. Yeah. And trading it in for my yeah. father's dream. Yeah. To, yeah. So I'm standing there and I say to the old man, I just can't do this. I have to go back and I have to get an education. And he's looking at me. What? What do you mean? What do you mean? <laughs> my father's never about education. My father's thing was always about money. Yeah. And he says, um, don't be stupid. I said, look, no disrespect to you. I know you worked and he worked hard, really hard. He put up with a lot. Yeah. I said, no disrespect to you, but I have to get an education. I said, I'm leaving. I'm going back. I'm going to go to art school. What? Oh, my God. That would have been a shock for him. But did you also find that the, didn't the prospect of living in Greece, wasn't that a difficult idea Absolutely. as well? Because it, it was so bizarre to me and yeah. foreign. So you, you did your, you, your um, Bachelor of Visual Arts, yeah. wasn't it, at yeah. the University of Western Sydney? And, that right. was, and did you enjoy that? Yeah, I did. I did because for the first time I had purpose and a defined purpose and um, I basically went there. And the good thing about Western Sydney back in those days was that, you know, my wife calls it a Clayton's University because it was just open-ended. You could go in there and do whatever you wanted. I mean, for God's sake, in the art storeroom, they were handing out... Um, canisters of paint it was amazing and it also allowed for me to you know jump into painting if I wanted to and then cross studios and go in and and do um you know printmaking or do photography or so when when you finished you got I mean from what I understand your first solo exhibition was when you were pretty young yeah so how did that come how did that come about I used to um uh, visit uh, Barry Stern's gallery up here in um, on Glenmore Road in Paddington a lot, and there was this is Dominic Maunsell is still up there now. He's taken over from Barry Stern, mm-hmm. and um, he uh, used to deliver milk to a lot of our friends in Dover Heights, and he was a milkman, mm-hmm. and he'd say to me, "Oh, George, I'm Imegalatas, which means I'm a milkman yeah. in Greek," and I go, "Oh, wow, wow," <laughs> you know. So we instantly had a rapport, you know, yeah. because he um, obviously grew up with a lot of the Greeks of the eastern suburbs and knew them and respected them, you know. Yeah. Um, and I would go in there from time to time and and then I think I was in second year and I said, Dominic, I think it's time for you to look at my work, you know. And he said, oh, okay, show me, you know. Mm. So I showed him some slides that I had, you know, back in those days you did slides yeah. and... Um, I took in these slides and he was he was blown away but he said to me I'm going to ring Tim Olsen now and you should go and see Tim Olsen right now and that was 1992 I think or 1993 and Tim Olsen and Michael Carr had just opened a gallery down Paddington Street 
down the road from um, Lucio's on the corner. Oh, yeah. So I went down. He said, go now. Go straight away. <laughs> uh, okay. So what, you went with a few of you, oh, with the slides? With the slides. Yeah, yeah. So I said, okay, Dominic, go on. So I go down there um, and I walk in and Tim and Michael both there and gushing. Oh, this painting. Oh, you remind me of my father when he was your age. Oh, wow, these paintings are so Olsen. alive. Yeah. yeah. These paintings are so alive. So I. So ins- you captured their imaginations. Yeah, they instantly felt it and just saw in me that there was some, some language there that yeah. they, you know, kind of had a response to. And, and they chose um, one big painting. It was about a six foot painting. And I remember um, I took it down there with the old man's Volvo with a, um, a uh, trailer on the back of it. Um. I had my mate help me. And we put it in the back and we drove it to the gallery and they hung it in the window. Within one week they sold it. They sold it for, I think it was 8000 or $6,500. And, and for how me, old were you? I was, my God, um, 20. I was a millionaire. And do you remember what it was a painting of? Um, yeah, I've got a photo of it somewhere. It was just a painting of like a Grecian kind of looking mythological figure. And I remember it wasn't even square. The canvas wasn't even square. I mean, I was at art school, you know. Yeah, sure. And then they sell that painting instantly. I'm now in my third year, and they say to me, right, we we need to do a show for you. Okay, let's do a show. So they do a show. They sell every painting off the wall. From then, it was nonstop for the next 25 years. I never stopped it just snowballed into something that I could never, ever foresee or imagine. It just took me to amazing places. And um, it just kept getting bigger and bigger every year. I think, for the most part, um, I'll go back to the word contrived. I never want my work ever to be contrived or forced. It's just a real outpour of emotion, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, and I, I never go in with the theoretical base ever because I'm not interested in that what I do is an emotional response yeah so when so when you say it's a response Mm. where do you get your inspiration from I mean from everything and everywhere I mean talking to you right now you know two weeks down the track I'll remember something we've spoken about and it'll spark something off Mm -hmm. um it's it's just simply being behind somebody one day and hearing conversation and I'll pluck you know, a quote out of the air that they said to one another and that jogs my memory and gets me going to create a scenario where there's two figures staring at one another and then... Would you create those figures from your imagination? Most of the time, yes. And sometimes, um, and mostly of late, I've kind of reversed that where I don't use the imagination. The imagination comes... It's hard to explain to you as I'm working the story begins to unfold itself and the painting tells me where I need to take it. I have 50 sketchbooks Mm -hmm. that what I do in these uh, sketchbooks, I collage things, I draw on things, Mm -hmm. I paste things, I draw, I write things. I sit in the car waiting for the kids at school drawing and, and making notes, you know, and I believe through that act we weed things out and then they come. And all these little insignificant marks are the sum of all parts to the big paintings, you know. Mm. Um, the one thing that I'm really honing my eyes on um, of late is that 
all the indiscriminate things that we perceive as indiscriminate, the marks which are a kind of a refuse of creating something bigger, mm-hmm. uh, have become for me more important than the big picture. Mm. So, for example, you know, I've been using a lot of watercolour of late and dabbing the, the, the brush indiscriminately and not even thinking about it and turning off that part of my brain where I'm judging, oh, I better not dab there, yeah. I better dab there, and just doing it because it's the result of, um, you know, a kind of a, not a predisposed action, you know, it's happening and I'm not thinking. And then I look at it a week, a month later and think, my God, that's amazing. Because I'm not controlling it. And what medium do you prefer? Oh, anything. Uh, you know, I get excited by anything. Nothing. I, I don't turn away at anything. I don't shy away at anything. I mean, you know, one minute I'm, I'm uh, working on shoeboxes because of the, the waxy surface. Mm. And it's this whole, you know, coupling of finding an inanimate object and turning it into something where somebody is going to a door, yeah. you know, and me kind of putting marks on it. You know, there's nothing that I shy away from ever. Probably for the listener, we should probably give an example of, of the sort of titles that you use, like museum quality, calling a, an artwork museum quality. Talk about yeah. irony. Yes. Um, it's poking fun, obviously poking fun at the institutions. Mm-hmm. It, it is it is a, sort of a joke, but it's serious at the same time. Absolutely. It's all um, serious. But I'm, what I do and, and what I also... You know, it's reflective of what I do pictorially is that I give you something to look at, right? I give you something pretty and you go, wow, that's beautiful. But then as I get your initial gaze, I start taking you on this journey and you realise it's not so beautiful. Mm-hmm. There's scars in there. There's build-up of paint. There's scratched out digits and numbers and, and Greek letters and, you know, illegible words and mm. phrases and... and you're too invested now to walk away because I've got you. I've got you in there. So to do this thing, museum quality, and then, you know, the next line was, it's a pun. It's like, what are my pictures? <laughs> Rubbish quality? You know, what's that guy's pictures? <laughs> you know, a lot of people kind of go, oh, he's off again, you know. And you know what? I think, for me, it amuses me to no end. But that's an interesting... I mean, you're going on to a different topic now about critics... There's always going to be criticism, I suppose, mm. and unless you, unless there is criticism, I suppose people aren't looking at your work. So in a way, it's a compliment. Well, I don't know. I don't know what what really what role the critic serves. I mean, let's take for example a food critic. His stomach is not tuned like my stomach is. So how can he tell me if that food is good for me or not? You know, when when people tell you, "Oh, that film is so great," I mean, how ridiculous! You've got to understand, for me, it's not just about the, the painting. It's about everything that comes with that. Which is? Which is how I conduct myself, how, where I want the paintings to be taken, you know, um, the things that I go through to create that painting, you know. It's a whole process. Mm. What do you, uh, what's your aim, what's your purpose in your art? I want to um, give people... Almost, I want them to be a beacon of hope in a certain sense. I want people, um, you know, I, I reference my my Greek heritage, i.e., 
you know, in the Greek Orthodox Church, the Greek ikona, the icons, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember coming back from Greenfall and going to Surrey Hills and seeing the Greek church and seeing all these little old grandmas in black, the widows, you know, doing their sign of the, the cross and kissing these bits of glass with a picture of Jesus underneath it. And the power in that message that they're instilling yeah. so much on a piece of glass, yeah. on a piece of wood. What does that picture signify? Hope. Hope, you know? Mm. And that there's all these old women, they can barely walk, they can barely bend over, but they're making the effort to kiss the glass. So I've also taken this spin where I want my pictures to become the icon of the 21st century, where not you, you don't have to be of any denomination, you don't have to be Greek Orthodox, you can be Anglican, Buddhist, whatever, mm. but look at them as though they're going to give you some semblance of answer. Mm-hmm. Because in every four corners of you know, a canvas that I work, you know, I work hard. I strive hard for that semblance of truth. And it's only when I get to sort of almost like is exasperation do I stop and I feel like I've instilled enough of my soul and my truth into it. Yeah. And then I do it daily now with bits of watercolour. And I push yeah. things. I push them yeah. until they talk to me. So that's what you're doing uh, works on paper now? Yeah, works on paper. I mean, you know, um, sculpting these little heads out of Fimo air-drying clay. Uh, when did you start doing that? Oh, two they, days ago. Yeah, I just described it. They're, they're about, what, five centimetres high? Five centimetres high, high yeah. uh, Little heads mm. that they're sort of, uh, they're really um, interesting. Yeah. And painted. You've painted, sort of painted yeah. on top of them. Yeah. And what's the, why, why are you doing that? I'm always an advocate for uh, doing different things all the time because I think that's what keeps the mind healthy, the creative mind. Um, I don't just go and line up ten you know, canvases at once and paint anymore. I don't do that. I bump around. One way of um, you know, exercising one's creative brain is to draw. Draw every day or you know, get some watercolours and cut things out. I think it's, it's just as important to be constantly using your creative brain I think the great thing about drawing is you're constantly observing yeah. and and you're taking in what's happening around you because you notice things so much more. Absolutely. It's amazing. Absolutely. When you draw something, you think after about 20 minutes, you think, gee, I didn't notice that. Yeah. And you start yeah. drawing that bit, you know, and mm. it's amazing how you train your eye to yeah. see yeah, so that's much right. more. That's right. And I think when, when one is creating pictures, that sense of trying to turn that part of your brain off that's telling you do that go there go there is very tricky but for me because I do it all the time I know how to go into it and pull out of it it's almost like again a meditation yes definitely yeah and do you find uh, what do you think of Instagram because that's a method of getting lots of uh, seeing a lot of people's work really quickly yeah um, and following a lot of people that you like do you follow a lot of people I don't um and um i try not to um i play a game with instagram all the time i you know i load it like crazy and i have you know people in stockholm people in calgary people in iran that have invited me to go and teach in iran france everywhere all over the world that send me private messages or you know send me messages and say you know, thank you so much for your inspiration. Mm. And I share that stuff openly and then I, I retract it all, I pull it away because mm-hmm. that's what I do. Again, it's that, that thing of 
oh, you know, it's a sort of game that I play. I give you a lot, but I'll pull you back in. This mm. is what I do. Mm. And of late, I've just done that. And, you know, it's like some people say to me, oh, my God, you put so much work on Instagram. I go, yeah, well, why wouldn't I? Oh, I think it's great. Especially when the internet started taking off. Mm. There was a real reluctance, and I even felt it too. Why would you put your artwork online? Well, it was frowned upon. It, that's right. It was frowned, but yeah. now it's not considered that way because mm. it's the best way to get your work out there. Absolutely. And you know what it's done? It's pushed the art dealer aside, and I don't care what anybody says. You know, there's a statement for you. You know, these the game has changed and it's shifted. If I can backtrack, when I, when I depart, departed a certain gallery, I had an epiphany and that epiphany for me was that I was going to paint whatever I wanted without recrimination without fear without kind you know it's it's a sort of push down any thoughts that I ever had I'm very open with the way I feel about things and I saw work all around the world I I ship stuff off like you know today for example we've got a painting going off to Scotland you know, back in the day yeah, when I was in the you... normal gallery, you know. So that one, how would you have been contacted about that? That was via Instagram. You know, eight and a half thousand dollars. That's that's yeah. not. You know, it's not. It, it's a lot of money. Uh, only last week, I had this one family send me an email. George, we've been looking for you. We wanted to let you know that we own this painting, and it's one of our most treasured objects, and we're ready to buy another painting. They bought this painting from this gallery in 2010. Beautiful, beautiful. What was it? Dark painting. It was, it was called um, Aeschylus in the Underworld. And basically, I've got an image of it, and basically it's all Payne's Grey. Mm. It's very, very loaded, kind of airy, kind of, you know, metaphorical kind of painting that talks about digging oneself out of the underworld. So it's a figure standing there, and these figures are done with a little, very little brush and scraped over, and mm. yeah, there's one figure that's kind of a, a zesty lemon yellow on, on this sort of black background, mm. and then another that's kind of like this very cherry red, and it's holding up in the middle almost a white embryo, and it's mm. pulling it out up into the sky as an offerance, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, it was such an important painting for me because... All of a sudden I was free, I was letting myself go, I was, you know, unshackled and this amazing story came out, Mm. you know. And that's my story. It's not a mythological story. Mm. I created that story. And I often wondered who bought that painting because it was one of the first paintings it sold. And I often wondered who had it. So I get this email from these people and they say they own it. And I, I almost fell over. I haven't stopped thinking about that painting for 10 years. Feel meeting people who have appreciated your art. My job is done. I mean, you know, you can't beat that. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't put that into words. Yeah. You know, like I, I was getting goosebumps when I when I was reading the email. I'm sort of also at the point now in my career where I'm kind of, um, not anti so much, but backing away from the whole mode of the exhibition. You know where where, you know, I send off 25 paintings and, you know, even like, you know, the last five years, if I'm honest, you know, I'd always say to my my wife and my daughters, you know, 
maybe I just won't turn up. You know that. Well, you've that, lost the excitement. Yeah, for it. I have. Mm. You know, it's it's like you know, uh, doing the same trick. Yeah, here we go. Here we go. You know. So, what are you working on at the moment? I've, um, as you know, I've just did um, the transported show in Canberra, mm-hmm. um, and that finished. Um, it's in May, a while wasn't ago. It? Yeah, it's only a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't that long ago, and that that. That was um, an interesting thing because finally, you know, I had the uh, curators from the National Gallery of Australia standing in front of my work and, you know, what that means, I don't really know. You know, and one thing that I do love to do, and, and I must admit, I love, you know, and I did this in Canberra, I love to talk about what I do to children. If I can give one person, one kid, one adult, two adults, five kids, the impetus to believe in themselves, mm. to get up and say, from flexing my arm and pushing something around, it can take me to Tokyo, it can take me to New York, it can take me to Shanghai, to Hong Kong. Mm. Because the, the, the yeah. you know, the fruits of your labour are unbelievable. Mm. You know, it's about teaching them that because I did it, you can also do it. You know, you, but you have to believe. Mm. You have to believe. Now, it may not be art, maybe playing sport, maybe, I don't know, being um, successful at being a carpenter. Mm. But you have to believe, mm. you know. And I think, um, you know, currently there's so much disbelief going on. It's easier to be a disbeliever than a believer, mm. you know. Mm. Um, again, that's why I create pictures. I want mm. people to believe that everything essentially works out okay. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, on that note, that positive note, thanks so much for speaking with me today. I really enjoyed it. Um, And I'm looking forward to your work in the future. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it too. You can find a link to George's website on talkingwithpainters.com. You can also follow Talking With Painters on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and you can also contact me through the contact page on the website if you've got any suggestions or feedback about the show. Hope you join me next time for episode 5 of the Talking with Painters podcast.